Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. So good to see you guys. Um, hey, if, if you are new here, um, man, we are so pumped that you are here. We're so excited that you are here. We bought you something. We bought you something. And so uh, we actually have a free t-shirt uh, that we would love to give you today. And so if you'll take the card from the back of the seat in front of you, fill it out with us, uh, with your information, and just stop it by Next Steps on the way out, which are those two kiosks in the lobby. Stop it by there. Get, they'll give you some info about our church uh, to help you make a decision about where God would have you, have you begin to worship, but also give you a uh, free t-shirt. And don't we all love free t-shirts? Amen. All right. So this morning is is part three of this series that we're calling Return. And if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, it's okay. Uh, we're going to, each one of them is kind of a standalone message. But um, I want to take a moment before we really dive in to this week's to really, I should have done this the first week, to help us understand what this series is about, okay? Um, so let's go back to basics. If you take your Bible or your Bible app or whatever, um, you notice that the first, the first, that the whole Bible is divided into two large sections. Uh, the first large section is called the Old Testament. The second large section is called the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us the story uh, of God working through a particular family that becomes a nation, the, the, the people of Israel, the Israelites. And the Old Testament is the story of God working through those people to teach the nations to obey God. That's what the Old Testament is about. But as the story begins to unfold, what we find is that they stink at it. They're just terrible at it. Uh, they don't listen to God. They disregard his principles. Um, or other times they even just outright worship other gods besides him. And when that happens, God would call up someone uh, from among them or from outside of them to speak on behalf of God and to tell them, hey, you're headed down the wrong path. These are what the Bible calls prophets. Prophets. Now, God did this time and time again. And if you flip through like to the first page of your Bible, you're going to see kind of like a table of contents where you see all the books of the Bible. Beginning with the book of Isaiah and the Old Testament, pretty much through the rest of the Old Testament, are the collections of these prophets' sermons. Isaiah, through the book of Daniel, are what we call the major prophets, beginning after Daniel, with Hosea, through the end, there's 12 more. Those are called the minor prophets. Now, when you think of major and minor, what do you think of? Music, hockey, baseball. So it tells me a lot about you. You know what I mean? Like what you think about. Because you guys that say music, like I immediately, I immediately think like you're probably a little bit more musical person. Uh, so it says baseball. I know, yeah, that's, you're just, you're maybe an athlete growing up or whatever. And if you said hockey, I don't even know what to do with that. Like I don't, I don't know. You're not from around here or something. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so when we think about majors and minors, especially in regards to baseball, like Kathy said, okay, baseball, don't think of major and minors like baseball. Okay, because in the minor league baseball, the minors are those that are trying to make it big, right? They're the ones that are just maybe a little bit less talent or maybe newer to the game, and they're trying to they're trying to prove themselves. That's not what's going on in the Bible. The majors are not the big deal, and the minors just the guys that are trying to make it. There's a deeply theological reason why the minors are called the minor prophets, and it's because they're short, not in stature, but in like the book length. That's it. 
Okay, so when they're called minor prophets, it's only that they're shorter, not that they're less important, not that they weren't as big a deal, but that they, uh, they're just shorter books, okay? And so by the time Jesus is born, I know this is some history, but hang in there with me. By the time Jesus comes onto the scene in the first century, he's an Israelite. And so he's studying these Old Testament books. He's reading about the prophets. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, they've gotten all these old books written on scrolls. Books didn't exist like we have today, right? So they were all on scrolls. And all the books of the Bible had a scroll. Well, guess what? Can you imagine the book of Obadiah, which is like 40 verses on a scroll? It would be this big. And that would be weird. So instead of putting all the last 12 minor prophets on 12 different scrolls, they actually put them all on one together. So there's a fun fact for you that I don't know if it has any relevance. But what, by Jesus' day, they, all the minor prophets were on one scroll together, and they called it the Book of the Twelve. That's the name they gave for it. So to them, they viewed it as one book. They knew it was different writings from different prophets, from different periods of time, for different purposes. They knew all that. But there's something that was running through these 12 books of the minor prophets that they saw in common that allowed them to put it on one scroll together. And I believe, and again, I don't know exactly because there's no writing that proves this, but I believe they were seeing the same thing that I've been trying to help us see in this series. Is that although every one of these minor prophets, there's so many particulars, particular person, particular place, writing for a particular purpose, particular situations. Every one of them is different. However, there's a theme that runs through the whole thing, and it's that the prophet is calling the people to return. Return to the Lord. In fact, most of the minor prophets literally use that phrase, return to the Lord. And so as we go through this, what, we've, what, we've, what, what I'm making the argument is that the prophets are not just trying to point out the sinfulness of the people and then telling them to return to God. They're actually urging God's people to return by showing them a picture of who God is. So if you remember back to week one, we looked at the story of Hosea, which is this, this crazy, off-the-wall wild story. And we'll talk, maybe reference it here in a little bit, but the point of Hosea, Hosea was saying, return to the Lord because God is a God who pursues us. Like a relentless spouse pursuing their wayward mate, God loves us and pursues us even in the midst of our unloveliness. And then last week we looked at the book of Joel. And what we see is that Joel, Joel is saying, return to the Lord because God is a God who restores. Yes, life is hard and we're going to at times feel broken in your sin. But if we'll have a heart centered on repentance, God will bring restoration to us. And so this week, if you missed either one of those, you can check them out on the podcast, YouTube or Facebook. Check them out if you want uh, to get called up. But today we're looking at this third book of the book of the 12 called Amos. So if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and open up to the book of Amos and feel free to use the table of contents. There's no judgment here. It's hard to find. It's short. It's in the, it's minor. It's little. Okay. So use the table of contents. If you use a, a Bible app on your phone, you don't even have to like, you have to click on it. So you have to go to the table of contents. So no judgment there. We're going to see here in a second is that Amos is a sheep breeder who God calls to speak difficult messages to the kingdom of Israel during some of its darkest days. And what we're going to see today is that Amos's call was to return to the Lord because God is a God who sees. He's a God who sees. So 
I'm going to read the, just the first two verses of the text um, to kind of just provide some background, and then I'll pray, and then we'll start talking about the passage, okay? This is Amos 1, 1 and 2. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, we have these testimonies, God, that are ancient. God, these are old words being spoken to people that they didn't know what cell phones were and they didn't know what TVs were. They didn't know what radio was. God, they couldn't even imagine the world we live in, but God, they're still struggling with the same sins that we struggle with today. And so God, may we not look at this just as an ancient text written to ancient people, but God, as a modern text written to modern people. And God, may we hear your word today fresh and and with clear eyes um, and just an open heart ready to receive. Uh, God, as we always pray, we we ask that you teach us to know you today and that you would be with us as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, as we started, we saw that Amos, uh, we find out he's not from noble birth. There's nothing special about Amos. Um, he's, a, he's a shepherd, some sort of shepherd. Um, but what's interesting, and this, we'll chase this rabbit for just a moment to provide context. He's a, he's a shepherd from the, the kingdom of Judah, who actually goes north to preach in Israel. And so if you're not familiar with like a geography um, in the ancient world, let me help you. The Israelites early on in their history, um, the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt. They were, they were living, uh, not yet possessing the land that God had promised to them, but they, they wind up going to Egypt because of a famine. And they find themselves enslaved there over 400 years. And, but God leads them out miraculously using a guy named Moses, if you've heard the name Moses. That's the guy we're talking about. He leads them out miraculously with, uh, with God doing the miracles. Um, and he leads them back to the land that God had told their ancestors that he would give them. And what's interesting is the, the people that possess the land that God said, this is your land, this is going to be yours. The people there were terrible. They were doing unspeakable things. And so God actually uses Israel to bring judgment on these people. But God also uses the battles as a way to secure the land for his, the Israelites. And so the Israelites set up shop there for many years. Uh, They're trying to figure out what does it look like to be the people of God, but also to be a nation. And so they wind up uh, appointing a king. We want a king, just like everybody else. And God says, it ain't going to be good, but go ahead. And so they appoint a king. And the second king, you may know by the name of David, if you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard the name David. That's the kind of, that's what's going on here. But within a couple generations, two generations after David, The people of Israel disagree on who should be their new king. Can you imagine a group of people disagreeing over who should be in charge? I can't think of a single... Whatever. Anyway. Like, this should all... This is all... Like, we're... Anyway. Nothing new under the sun. But it leads to a disagreement that the the Israelites actually split into two separate kingdoms. A northern kingdom that retains the name Israel and the and a southern kingdom which takes on the name Judah. And I know being in America we can't imagine that ever happening either. 
There's no point in our history, I don't think, where the nation split into two, a northern and a southern, over disagreements, right? But these two kingdoms, they, they continue to disagree and they continue to even battle with one another. This is originally God's people together and now we're in a southern and northern kingdom. So that's just to provide the background for you. So let's go back to the book of Amos. Amos was a, he was from the south. Right? He was from the southern kingdom. He was a shepherd from Judah. But he was called to cross the border and to preach in Israel. Now, how do you think that's going to go? Bad. Thank you, Asher. Bad. Yes. Bad. And it does. In chapter 7, uh, there's proof. In chapter 7 of Amos, Amaziah, who was kind of like a prophet in the northern kingdom, goes to the, goes to the king and says, Look, man, there's this guy named Amos, and he's from, he's from the south. And he's come up here to the north, and he's telling he's he's calling you out, King Jeroboam. He's saying he's telling our people that you're not you're not following God. Like we got to do something about it, right? So he he's already the deck is stacked against him by the fact that he's a southern boy coming up in the north to preach, and so he's told to go back home. But Amos doesn't listen. He continues to preach. There's not a lot of storyline in the book of Amos like we get with the book of Hosea where you have this story of a husband and wife and this really, really beautiful picture. It's not that. It's not quite as structured as the the book of Joel was last week where it's like chapter 1 is about this, chapter 2 is about this, chapter 3 is about this. But what stuck out to me as I read the the book of Amos were the sins of the people. Joel didn't tell us particular sins that were going on in Israel that he was speaking against. Amos gives you more than you ever wanted to know. Amos spends six of the nine chapters just wailing about the sins that are going on, not just in Israel, not just in Judah, but even in the surrounding countries, the whole region. And so um, he starts off, and we're going to hit this really quick because it's not going to have as much application for us. But the first thing that Amos hits on are the sins of those who don't know God. He hits on the nations around Israel. And as Amos starts his message, he would have started, this would have been exactly what the Israelite hearers wanted to hear. Like when he starts this message, he starts pointing a finger at all the nations around Israel. Because don't we all love to hear the preacher preach on somebody else's sins? Isn't that always good? Always good. Hey, preach it. Not about my stuff. Don't get in my business, but preach it, right? And I don't like preaching on my sin either, but that's what's going on. Like, uh, Amos is talking about the sins of all these other nations, nations that have attacked and fought against Israel through the years. And Amos makes it clear to Israel, God's going to deal with them. God will judge these nations. These nations are not off the hook just because they're not God's people. Like these people, they're all, they are going to have to face their sinfulness. He starts in verse 3. This is how he starts off every single one as he calls them out by name. The Lord says, that this is Amos 1-3. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Each one, each nation starts off the same way. I will not relent from punishing, fill in the blank, for three crimes, even more, because, and then he fills in the blank of their specific sins. He speaks against Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, Moab, and even their brothers and sisters down in Judah. And if you were to plot them all on a map, what you would see is that God seems to be drawing a circle around the nation of Israel. Around his people. 
You can look later at their sins if you're interested in what was going on, but we're not going to take note of that because, again, we're going to spend our time on point number two, the sins of God's people. Sins of God's people. So as Israel hears each of the nations mentioned, no doubt Amos was getting amens from the crowd. But once the circle is drawn all the way around Israel, Amos comes back and puts a dot in the middle. A bullseye of God's judgment. As each of the nations get uh, each of the nations around Israel get one paragraph to describe their sin, Amos spends four to five chapters describing the sins of Israel. So I'm going to look at Judah first, even though they're listed among you know the, the other nations because they were also a people who were claiming to worship and and love the one true God. So their sin is going to be one that we can relate to, and it's this. So this is like two A if you're a diligent note taker and you don't want to mess up. Your stuff, okay? Uh, So 2A is the sins of rejection. Sins of rejection. This is Amos 2, 4, and 5. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. You catch this. Why was Judah worthy of being judged? Because they had rejected the instruction of the Lord. They had rejected the instruction of the Lord. And by the time that Amos is speaking, God's word is already, at least parts of the Old Testament are already in place. We already have a working word of God. We have a Bible, if we want to use that term. And the Bible declares to all who read it the nature and character of the God of all creation and the way in which he expects mankind to act and react within his creation. By definition, to sin is to reject God's word. When you go back to the very beginning, the first two humans, what do you see? If you're not familiar, uh, the first two chapters of the Bible actually describe God creating everything. And then in chapter 3, we get to hear about this relationship God had with Adam and Eve. He declared to them, the instruction, there was no Bible, there was no scrolls. There was one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's only don't God gave them. And that's the very thing that they do. Because just like the people of Israel... They rejected the instruction of God and chose to do their own thing. And by the time Amos is writing, nothing has changed. Judah was rejecting God's word in the days of Amos. And church, I'll argue nothing's changed for us today. Your pastor still chooses to disobey the instruction of the Lord on a daily basis. And I know I'm the only one. Because y'all are all awesome. But like we, we, we still do the same thing. We still reject the instruction of the Lord and choose to do it our own way. I know you've said how life works best, God, but I don't want to show compassion. I don't want to be merciful. I don't want to love. I don't want to show grace. Right? I want to gossip, backbite, and put down because it makes me feel better about myself. What is that from? It's rejecting the instruction of the Lord and choosing your own way. Sin begins with rejecting God's word, just like the sin of Judah. 
But Amos, and so Amos then goes on uh, the very next verse, verse 6. He starts talking about Israel. And he does not just give them one little paragraph. Again, he goes on for a while. So we're going to see three more different kind of categories of sin as we go through this. The second one is this. Um, uh, sins against the image of God. Look at verses uh, 6 and 7, chapter 2. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four. If you remember from last week, you remember how God sent locusts on Israel just like he sent it on Egypt and how that would have ticked them off that he dealt with them the same way he dealt with sinners like Egypt? He's speaking to them just like he spoke to everybody else. He uses the same intro, right? It would have been frustrating. God, we're different than them. Don't speak to us the same way as you speak to those sinful nations. Why will they not relent from punishing? Because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have relations with the same girl profaning my holy name. Do you see what Israel was doing? They're using humans as currency to get what they want. They're destroying the poor instead of helping them. And their men are taking advantage of young girls. What's going on here is a rejection of the image of God in mankind. Amos is going to go on from here to describe some awful sins. Sins that actually are sins directly against God in their worship. We're going to talk about next. But Amos starts with calling out this sin in Israel. Why? Because they are sins that deny the image of God principle that he set up from the very beginning. Again, i got to take you back to Genesis. This is back to y'all, right? This would be back to Genesis. This is forward for y'all. I'm learning. got to take you back to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. This is God creating mankind. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. Notice this. God made man in his image. Not just the good men, not just the good women. Not just, he made all ma- mankind. Mankind from the very beginning was made in his image. And what was his purpose? To rule over the fish, the birds, the livestock, the creepy crawlies, and the whole earth. But did you catch the part in there where it said you're to rule over one another, like to fight with one another for power? Did you hear that part when I read that? Did you hear the part in there where it says that God makes some people a little bit more special and that they deserve to put other people down? Did you hear that part? It's because it's not there. It's not there. Guys, this is the problem with humanity. It's a, bi- it's a problem throughout the biblical storyline from beginning to end. What we see in the Bible is when mankind begins to fight with one another and fight for power, God is not honored. We see it with Adam and Eve's kids. They had two, two sons at the beginning named Cain and Abel. They both bring sacrifices to God, and for whatever reason we're not going to get into, God says, hey, Abel, I really appreciate your sacrifice. Cain, I don't, there's something not right about it. Cain gets ticked, frustrated, jealous, confused, whatever the emotion was, it gets to the point that he kills his brother Abel. Church, he killed an image bearer of God. He didn't step on a bug. He didn't cut the head off of a snake. He, he killed an image bearer of God. 
Cain claimed authority on his own over his brother. You can see that same narrative play throughout the rest of the Bible. We get to Jesus on the new scene. Jesus comes into a, a culture that is very divided. There's a high class and there's a low class. There's no middle class. And who does Jesus speak kindly of? High class or low class? Low class. Some of Jesus' harshest messages are not to the poor. They're to those that are way up here. And why? Because God knew that y'all think you're here, but God made you here. And you're looking down, you're pointing your finger, you're treating the poor in such a way that is not honoring to God because there's nothing less honorable in them than is in you. And this is what's going on. And so now we know it's in the New Testament, but is it here today? You think? I look back over the history of America. Good night. We treated people differently based on their skin color. What? As if the image of God is more prevalent in someone with a different skin tone. What in the world? It's a lie. And it's, the, it, it's a continuation of the very thing that's been going on from the beginning. So I want to ask, I think it's still present today. So let me ask you some questions. Do you live your life acknowledging that all those people around you in your life are made in God's image too? Like, do you acknowledge that or is that something you have to remind yourself of? Because remember, it's a sin to not see that. In the way you treat, for you that are bosses, in the way that you treat those who work for you, do you treat them like image bearers? Do you remember that they're made, I know they work for you, whatever. Like, do you treat them like there is the image of God in them? And some of y'all that aren't bosses, you're like, hey, man, hey, let's flip it to you, okay? <laughs> let's talk about y'all. Do you look at your, do you have to, are you reminding yourself regularly that your boss was made in the image of God? Talking about him or her as if she or he was made in the image of God? Parents, what about the way we talk to our kids? Do we talk to them like they're somehow less than us? I'm not saying you treat your kids like adults. That's not what I'm saying. But like, do we remember that our children are made in the image of God? I hear parents talk to their kids like they're dogs or something. Our kids, they are deserving of respect because they're made in the image of God. Church, there are image bearers in our community, image bearers around the U.S. and to the far reaches of the globe who have been made in the image of God and many of them are not being treated as such. And we, as the church, have got to do two things. We need to find those people and we need to tell them that they are made in the image of God and that they are worth a lot. And then we need to treat them as if they actually are that way. This is what missions is all about. Finding ways to invite people into their own 
to own their created purpose by becoming a good image bearer of God. And that begins through the saving power of Jesus Christ. So we've seen Judah's sins, we've seen, uh, which was rejection. We've seen Israel's sins, which was this, these things against the image of God. But he goes on with Israel and another bucket of sins that they have, which I think probably is a result of these first two. Sins of spiritual lethargy. We'll use that, just laziness or uh, off-putting, uh, delayed behavior, whatever. Lethargy, all right? This is Amos 4, 4 and 5. This is God speaking through Amos. And I'm going to use a sarcastic tone because I think we're supposed to. <laughs> Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every t- three days. Offer your leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice. Loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Sarcastic tone is there, I think. So here, here's what's going on. Bethel, if you're not, again, I didn't know this. So Bethel was a place of sacrifice. It was important for the northern kingdom. So if you remember, Jerusalem was the original uh, capital city of Israel. Well, then when they split, guess where Jerusalem was? It was in the southern kingdom. So now, no, the northern people are certainly not going to the south to make sacrifices. So they developed their own places of sacrifice. Bethel was one of these places. Bethel literally means house of God. So it was the place where the Israelites would have brought their sacrifices. And we see them. I mean, God says, you're bringing, you're bringing me your sacrifices every morning. You're bringing me your tithe. You're bringing leavened bread to the priests as a Thanksgiving sacrifice. And all that seems good because that's all the things that God asked them to do. Like God asked them to do these things generations earlier. So why is God sarcastic? (laughs) I think it's clear at the end in verse 5. He says, offer your leavened bread. Offer your your loud free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. That is what you Israelites love to do. What we see is that the Israelites have developed the right habits of worship. They're doing the right things. However, church, it seems that they have fallen in love with worship instead of the God who desires our worship. That's an important distinction that we see. They love going to the priest. They love making sacrifices. They even do it loudly. I don't care if you know I'm going. Uh, I don't know what they're doing loudly, but they're doing something loudly. They're not ashamed, and it's, it's clear. That's my singing voice. You guys just heard that, Patrick. Put me on a worship team, man. Put me in, coach. All right. You know, get me distracted. But they're doing all this. They're doing all the right thing. They're not ashamed. But it's clear that God is not pleased with their worship. And, and this is the most confusing but also clearest way I can say it. When worshipers worship for the sake of worship, they actually neglect the God who deserves to be worshipped. When worshipers worship for the sake of worship, they're neglecting the God who deserves to be worshipped. Well, let me ask you a question. I've asked it about the other two. Let me ask it now. Do you think this can happen today? Do you think people can come to church week after week, fellowshipping with others before and after a service? They can lift their hands and worship. They can take notes during the message, and they can do all of that. 
Because they love the worship experience more than they actually love God? Do you think that could happen? Yeah. Like, I think, yeah. I think it's totally possible. It's called religion. And every other one is based on it. But it's supposed to be what's different about ours. I think we as, I as a pastor can be guilty of it. I've seen it in my own heart and life. I can love preaching more than I love God. I can love ministering to you and being there in the hospital with you and being by a parent's bedside who's dying. I can, I can love the idea of pastoring more than I love the God who called me to do it. And that's a dangerous place to be. So Amos calls out these three things. And then he, he adds one more category, one more bucket that they're guilty of. And that's the sins of false contentment. We see this in Amos chapter 6. Listen to what he says in verse 1. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 4 because it's just a lot to read. But you can read the stuff in between. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to, they lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches. They dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those, uh, the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. I told the first service this, and I'll tell you. I thought a first word that came to my mind when I read that. Dang. Is that the first word that came to y'all's mind? What is the accusation? Amos says, woe, or that ain't good, to those who feel content. And when, I read, when I've studied the Bible, like I know contentment is good. Right? The verse that... Tim Tebow used to put under his eyes Philippians 4.13. I think it had little to do with football, but it had to do with contentment. Paul says, I have learned how to be content in all things. I've learned, no matter what my situation, I've learned to find contentment in who God is. And so what's wrong with Israel's contentment at this point? If they're content, isn't that good? Their contentment was in having stuff. Their contentment comes with having everything. And when you have everything, your concerns are superficial. Amos says, y'all are sitting fat and happy up at the temple. You have everything you ever dreamed of. You got lambs and calves to eat, ivory inlaid beds, which I hope was on the headboard or something, not underneath because that would be uncomfortable. Nice big couches. You got great music to listen to. You got wine by the bowlful, the fanciest of oils from down at the Bath and Body Works. There's nothing Nothing that you could ever desire. There is nothing on your Amazon wish list. Amen? There's nothing. You have it all. But the accusation is found in verse 6. You drink wine by the bowlful. You go to Bath and Body Works. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Israel was in such a place of economic upturn that they had become consumed with the things that they had. 
and the excess that they enjoyed. And church, what I've found in my life, where there is great excess, there is often great neglect. And many in Israel were so distracted by their own wealth and contentment that they couldn't see God's story unfolding before them. They seemed dead set on filling their life with every bit of comfort and earthly happiness that they could find that they missed it. And I'll just be honest, there are a lot of Israel's sins that I think fit our culture, even our church. But like this one, like just when I think about our culture, man, I, I, I don't, we don't have to, we don't have to travel back in time to see what he's talking about. We as the church, we just talked about, we can easily get distracted with our worship. We just spoke about that, but we can also get distracted by our stuff. That we miss what God wants to do in the world through us. Our minds are being occupied constantly with what we see on our cell phones, what we hear on our huge TVs, what we consume at the local restaurant, the latest toy, the new car, the bigger house, the new decor, the latest DIY project that you want to post about online. I'm telling you, church, these things are a big deal. But none of them are bad, right? None of them are bad. But when we get consumed by them, they will distract us from God's mission in the world. We'll neglect the nations in need of the gospel. We'll neglect our neighbors who need to hear about Jesus. And we'll neglect those within our church walls who need to learn more about Jesus. This is what's wrong with us. And I think Pink Floyd said it best. And I'm not going to make an excuse. I don't know what this song is actually about, but I think the lyric is apt. So, email me later. Kenny at lindsaylane.org. <laughs> Pink Floyd said, I have become comfortably numb. So much comfort, so much excess, so much, so much stuff at our, at our fingertips. That we become numb to the world around us. We become numb to the need of the gospel. We become numb to the, the joy that God has for us. When the people of God become so focused on living comfortable lives, the mission of God will be ignored or abandoned altogether. And my prayer this week as I've been studying, and my prayer will continue to be from here, may it not be so, of Lindsay Lane East. May we realize, as Israel did not, that any comforts we enjoy were not purchased by you. Nothing we have belongs to us. That's why God, throughout the rest of the book of Amos, says things like, It was me who led you out of Egypt. It was me who conquered the land that you enjoy. I won those victories. It was not, if not for me, you would still be slaves in Egypt. We need to acknowledge that our lives are actually a mess. We may look good on social media, but if our lives are not a mess, it is by God's grace alone. It is God alone who makes my life worth living, not my stuff. And let me just speak to the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and all of us know kids, so you're all in. This is hard enough for adults to grasp, isn't it? To not be focused on stuff. But it's so hard for our kids to get this. It's so hard for our kids to recognize. And so parents and grandparents and all of you, make sure your kids see and hear you trusting in God more than in your stuff. 
make sure they know that if there's any peace in your life and in your home and in your family, it did not come because you have a good job. It did not come because you're just that smart. It did not come from good genes. It came from the God who sent Jesus Christ to die for you. And by Jesus' blood, we can have peace and we can have comfort in that alone. May the Haney kids know that our peace comes from God. Haney's my last name. That was for guests, okay. Amos gives Israel the answer because it's one thing to point out a bunch of sins. It's another to give an answer. In chapter 5, we finally get the answer. The answer for sin, verses 4 through 6. The Lord says to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, which remember, that's a place of worship. Or go to Gilgal, journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will eventually come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. When we find ourselves in a place of sin, when we find ourselves hurting, when we find ourselves uh, broken over our sin, the sins that we've just spoken about, Amos says this, he says to Israel, and I think it applies to us, seek the Lord, and then we'll find life. And, and, and that, my, my, I thought that's too simple, though, isn't it? Like, doesn't that sound too simple? The answer for your sin, seek God and live. It only is too simple if the God that you're seeking isn't big, right? That's the only way. However, if the God that we're seeking is bigger than our sin, then there's something to be, to be said, when my kids get in trouble, what do they do? They come to their dad, and sometimes they're in a mess that I can't get them out of, but oftentimes they're in a mess that I'm bigger than, and I can fix it. When Amos says, seek God and live, this is the God that he's talking about. He says it in verse 8. The one who made the... Pl- there it is, Pleiades. I think I did better than the first verse. And Orion, who turns darkness into dawn, darkness day, uh, darkens day into night, summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is the God that we're called to seek. One pastor I read this week said, prepare, this is what he was putting this in God's, uh, putting Amos's words kind of in a, well, part of it's not necessarily modern, but you'll hear, see what I mean. Prepare to meet the God who builds constellations in space like tinker toys. Maybe not the most relevant term now, but. Prepare to build to, to meet the God who builds constellations in space like tinker toys, spins the earth like a top in his hands, and beckons for a tidal wave like a man whistles for a dog. This is the God that we're called to return to. Israel needed to be reminded that their God is the one who had rescued them, and he had all power to make their lives what he wanted to be. Return to the Lord. He's the God who sees the sins of his people yet still loves them. Church, God has not changed. He is still that powerful and he still desires to be the reason for your contentment, the object of your worship. He sees the depths of your heart. You're trying to hide sin from your pastor. You're trying to hide sin from your small group. You're trying to hide sins in the depths of your heart from your spouse or your family. God sees it all. But he still loves you. And that's pretty stinking cool. Today I'm asking you to wrestle with these issues of sin that I've already confessed to you are all 
all define your pastor. I wrestle with all four of these types of things. And I know these sins are not a list of the sins of Lindsay Lane East. They're, they're the sins of an ancient of ancient Israel. But after reading and studying and knowing our world and our church, I would say that every one of these issues are sin issues for us today because they're all sins of your pastor. So I want to ask you four questions before we sing a song of response. Four questions here. Number one, are you rejecting God's word through the way you live your life? Are you choosing your way over God's way and doing it willingly every day? Wrestle with that. Number two, are you treating others in such a way that ignores the image of God that is in them? Are you really loving God or do you just love worship and church stuff? Do you have a contentment that is based in your stuff instead of in God? Those are the four questions. If any of these are true, if any of those, ding, if that rang in your head, Amos says, seek God and live. Return to him. Return to the Lord. Because even in, our, even in your sin, God made a way for you to be forgiven from sin. Jesus came to the earth and took all the sin that you would ever commit. He supernaturally absorbed the weight and the heaviness of our sin. And he died on the cross. So now you and I can enjoy a relationship with God even though you continue to sin. Today, if you need to pray prayers of repentance, which means turning from sin and to God, you can pray those prayers during this last song. Or if your heart was moved to pray for someone else, this is the time for you to pray those prayers. You can do that right where you are because the Lord hears you. These ceilings are, are superimposed to allow your prayers to go through them. That's a joke. All ceilings are. But God hears all things. So you can pray right where you are. Or church, you can come to this altar. Again, nothing magical about the steps up here. But what happens just as people made the, the, the trek to the temple, there was something about moving their feet and going and lifting up prayers at a particular place. When you come to this place and you pray before your church family, people behind you begin to pray for you. And that's a cool thing. Today, if you need to pray those prayers, you can pray right where you are. Come up here. You can, you can uh, just worship God uh, from the depths of your heart. Uh, in a real way today as a form of response, or I'm going to sit, I'm going to stand right here on the end of the front row. And if you need to talk to me about something you're wrestling with, a question you have, uh, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your savior, I'd love to help you wrestle with that. But I'm going to stand right here on the end of the row and just come talk to me, pinch my arm and let me know what you want to talk about. And we can do that during this last song as well. Okay. But I'm going to say a prayer and uh, let's all just respond however we need to. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pray and we'll stand and sing after that. Father, I thank you, God, for uh, who you are and, God, your, your bigness, your, your vastness, God. I thank you that, uh, that you're big enough to use a, a, a message written to ancient people about ancient culture. You know, they, have, they would freak out if they were living in our day. There's so much that's changed. But yet, God, the sins of the people have not. And the God who can heal our broken hearts has not either. So today, God, we know we're coming to, to, a, to a modern God who is also an ancient God because he never changes. And today, God, we know that you love, you see our sin, you see the depths of our depravity and our awfulness and our badness, but God, you still love us anyway. And God, I thank you for that. And I pray, God, that today in this place, you would bring restoration, God, you would bring healing, you would bring, God, whatever it is that the hearts of your people need today. God, I pray that you would bring that. God, bring repentance to our hearts so that we can follow you more closely. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand and respond to the Lord.